I want to say hello to all of you who are watching online and television. For those of you in the room, would you please give a big hand to our online and television audience. As we get started uh, this morning talking about this very radical text in John 13, uh, I want us to do what we do every week, and that is remind ourselves that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than just us in this room or those who call Fraser home. And so I want us to pray for another local church this week. And this week we're going to pray for Raymer United Methodist Church and their pastor, Cooper Stinson. If you've had uh, the privilege of meeting Jordan Sullivan yet, our new traditional choir and orchestra director, she's in the room here. She was singing the choir back here a while ago. Um, uh, she and Todd and their family came from Raymer, and so it's an honor to get to pray for them today. Also, before we get started, I want to say I'm looking forward to, you'll hear about this a little later, the Young Adult uh, event tonight or this afternoon at 4 o'clock. Look forward to seeing uh, you guys there. We are in a sermon series uh, that we've entitled In This House, and this series, we're looking at five essential things to our Christian walk, five aspects of our Christian walk. And we started with week one about how that worship is our passion, that is so important to who we are. Last week, we talked about how the community is our priority, and today we're going to talk about how serving is our privilege. And so with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come in this moment, and we are so thankful for your presence that's in this place. And Lord, we are so thankful for Jesus, the one who died for our sins, rose on the third day for our salvation. And Lord, as we come now and we open up your word, before we do that, Lord, we pause and just remind ourselves that your kingdom is spreading all over this earth, and it is amazing and beautiful in so many ways. And so, Lord, this morning, we lift up Raymer United Methodist Church. We lift up Pastor Stinson. Lord, we pray that you would be with their members. Would you watch over them and protect them as they are seeking to build your kingdom? We pray that you would be with their pastor and their leaders. Lord, we pray that you would inspire them in this, these difficult days. And Lord, now, would you speak to us? Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Lord, we pray that you would forgive the sins of our speaker, because there are many. Help us to see Jesus, just Jesus. Through Jesus we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Whenever you hear the word serving, what do you think about? What is that kind of dominant image in your mind that you have when you hear the word serving or someone is talking about serving, maybe it's a person. Maybe there's a particular role model that you've had in your life, someone that you look to and they are an example of serving. Or maybe it's a particular action. Maybe there's a particular thing that you are doing now or you have done in the past and to you that's kind of your ideal when it comes to serving. If you kind of pan out and you're t thinking about, talking about this whole concept of servanthood and serving, there are kind of two big uh, ways that we can look at this or two ways that it happens in our life. The first way is in a structured way, in a structured way. And whenever I say structured way, what I mean there is normally what that means is we volunteer for something and normally it's kind of an ongoing thing, at least for a period of time. So we are we are serving in a structured way. We volunteer and we serve for a period of time. Uh, around here, what we do is we put three structured serving opportunities before us as a church every year. Used to, we would just do it once a year. Now we do it three times a year for a few reasons. Number one, it's really hard to plan a year out in a COVID world. Have you noticed that? 
eh, it's a little difficult. But not only that, we as a culture think about our calendar year in kind of three movements, right? We think about what are we going to do in the spring, and what are we going to do this summer, and what are we going to do in fall, what falls, what really football season, but so what are we going to do during football season, right? And so that's kind of how we plan, that's how we think about the year, and so we put these opportunities to say, hey, how are you going to be serving the Lord and serving others in the spring, in the summer, in the fall? That's why we do it that way. So there's that structured way of serving that we're familiar with and is a very important and necessary part of our life. But then there's also we serve situationally or in certain situations. This is normally spontaneous, and it's normally kind of a one-time thing. We serve someone in a particular situation one time. And in order to do that, we have to be, number one, sensitive to the Holy Spirit in our life, and then number two, also sensitive to the needs in people's lives around us if we're going to serve that way. Now, both of these are important. We need both of these in our life. We need to uh, serve in structured ways, but also in situational circumstances as well, or do it spontaneously as the Lord leads. I would contend that Jesus did both. Jesus served both in a structured way that fell into alignment with his messiahship, what he came to do. There are tons of prophecies about what he would do when he got here, but also Jesus served situationally. Jesus served people as needs would arise around him. Now, where we come to today in this text, Jesus is serving, in a sense, in a way that is in alignment with his messiahship, but he also does something that nobody is expecting him to do in John chapter 13. And so what I want to do is I want to look at these four movements throughout this text, and Jesus ends with a really, really heavy challenge for each and every one of us. Is this a good morning to challenge you, you think? Maybe? Yeah. Did you have your coffee before you came? Good. You're going to need it. All right. So the first movement that we see here in the text is in verse 1 and 2. And the first movement is that Jesus is actually living in a place of tension and betrayal. This text that we're looking at is a radical, mind-blowing text. It changes the way we see religion. It changes the way we see God. But this text starts off with Jesus living with a healthy amount of tension and then also betrayal that's taking place in his life. If you pick it up in verse 1, it says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. He knows what's about to happen in the coming days. And it says he loved his, his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Now remember, love is an action word. This is not some warm, fuzzy feeling he had in his heart toward his disciples. Love is an action, and he's about to show us one of the greatest acts of love the world has ever seen. The text goes on and says in verse 2, It was time for supper. It feels like time for lunch for me right now. But anyway, it was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. So Jesus is sitting in this room, and, and there's a whole lot of heaviness in his mind, in his heart, about what is taking place and about to take place in his life. The context is Jesus is right before the Passover celebration, the last Passover celebration he would celebrate before his death on a cross. The text tells us that Jesus knew the time was coming when he would accomplish his mission, structured mission, what he came to do, and he would return then to the Father. But as he sits there, he's sitting there with the weight, the heaviness of what's about to take place in Jerusalem, now just hours really away. He knows what's coming down the road. He knows that there is a cross in his future. 
Jesus is not too far away from sweating blood in agony in the garden. He is not too far away from his body being lashed. He is not too far away from nails piercing his hands and his feet. And he knows it. I don't know about you, but that's a whole lot of tension. That's heavy. He knows what he is about to endure. Not only does he know what he's about to go through physically, Judas is sitting in the room with him. Think about that. Judas is there. Jesus knows that he has betrayed him. He knows that he will continue to betray him as the story unfolds. So Jesus is living in this place with these very real, raw human emotions, and there is a lot of tension, and he knows one of his disciples is actively betraying him. Now, whenever we are in those places of tension or heaviness or hurt or betrayal, most of the time, those are not times when we say, huh, today's a really good day to serve somebody else, right? When we're living with tension and heaviness and betrayal and hurt and pain in our life, normally what we do is we kind of circle up the wagons and say, I need to get my house in order internally. I need to figure out what's going on and get on some, some steady ground here. So many times we think when it comes to serving people in structured ways or even situationally and spontaneously, we think we kind of have to have everything all together and in order in our life in order to serve people, and that is not the case. Jesus is living with a whole lot of tension and a whole lot of betrayal. Betrayal is sitting in the room with him, with him. But that's not the only place Jesus is. While Jesus is living with tension and heaviness, while Jesus is living with this betrayal, movement number two we see is that Jesus is also living in a place of reassurance and peace. We see it in verse three. In verse three it says, verse one says Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world. Verse three says Jesus also knew, he knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and Jesus knew that he had come from God and would return to God. Now, Jesus knows that the Father has given him all authority in heaven and on earth in this moment. He knows that. And he knows that his life on this earth is not going to end with what's going to happen in Jerusalem in just a short amount of time. Jesus knew the victory was going to be won, and he knew that it was going to be won in a way that nobody expected, even though Jesus had con uh, repeatedly been telling the disciples it had to happen this way. They really didn't want to believe it. And Jesus knows that he's going to the Father. He's going to be reunited with the Father as the Son. And as Jesus sits there, he knows he's going to win the victory. He knows he's going to win the victory over death, but he has to go through death in order to win it. He knows this. And Jesus sits there. And as he's looking around at his disciples, he does something that's absolutely shocking. I mean, think about it. This is the man who has all authority on heaven, or in heaven and on earth. He has every title anybody could ever want. Master, Lord, King, all of them. He has every one of them. And what he chooses to do in this moment will change the course of history forever. It'll change how we see religion forever. It'll change how we see saviors forever. It'll change how we see leaders forever. It'll change how we see Christ followers forever. Because what Jesus does in this moment, movement number three, is that Jesus is also living in a place of love-saturated servanthood. Yes, there is tension and betrayal. 
absolutely. But the overriding emotion and thought process where Jesus is living is in the reassurance and then the peace that comes from that reassurance from the Father. And because of that, Jesus does this action that is just saturated in love. He does this action as a servant that is saturated in the love of God. But he could only do this. He could only do this if he was living in that place of constantly letting God redefine his identity and define who he is. If Jesus does not let God define who he is, all he's going to think about is the tension and betrayal because those are painful, painful things in life. But he's choosing not to live there. Even though it's present, even though he has to wrestle through it, he's choosing not to live there. He says, I want God to define who I am. I'm going back to the Father just as I've come from the Father. And because of that, he lives into verse 4 and 5. It's crazy if you think about it. He gets up from the table. He gets up from the table. Everybody's reclining around the table. The people who walk around the table are servants. They serve other people. The disciples are like, why is Jesus standing up? Notice he stands up, but he doesn't like call everybody to attention. Jesus stands up, but he didn't like deal with Judas, which is probably what I would have done, right? Jesus stands up, and then he does something ridiculously crazy. It says he takes off his robe. That is powerfully symbolic. He's wearing a robe Probably didn't look like it, but he is the son of God. He's wearing a robe that kind of symbolizes the kind of robe a king would wear or a lord would wear. But he takes it off. And then he takes a towel and it says, you know, he wraps it around his waist. I'm not going to do that one for you up here, but you get the picture, right? He takes a towel. And the disciples are like, why is he doing this? You know, servants use that towel. And then it gets even crazier because he takes some water and he pours it into a basin. And the disciples are sitting there going, why is Jesus doing that? Servants do that. Servants take the towel. Servants take that bowl. Servants pour that water in. Then servants, and then they see it. Jesus walks over. I don't know who he started with, but he walks over, and he kneels down. He starts washing the disciples' feet. And he goes from one after another. And right here in this moment, Jesus is revealing something very powerful about who God is. Jesus is revealing that the God that we have, the Savior that we have, He is the foot-washing God. He is the foot-washing Savior. And what Jesus is telling His disciples as He's going into these last hours, ultimately on a cross, in, in resurrection, He's saying, remember who I am. My question to you this morning, one of them is, have you forgotten what kind of Savior we have? Have you forgotten what kind of God that we have? You see, so many times in this world, we, we think, you know, I, I am too dirty. The image that we have of God in our mind is that, you know, God is holy, God is out there, God is distant, He is good, right, perfect, and all of that is so true. But we think, I'm dirty, I have sinned, I have fallen short, I have sin in my life now, right? We think, oh, no, no, I'm dirty, I cannot approach this God. We have to remember, we have the foot-washing God as our Savior. 
He loves to wash the dirt away. He's kind of good at it, actually. He loves to wash the dirt away. But many times what we do is we, instead of experiencing Jesus washing the dirt out of our life, many times we just kind of hang on to the dirt that is in our life, and then we walk around trying to point out the dirt in other people's lives because we want to take the attention off the dirt that we have in our life. You get that? You with me there? We, we want to get everybody's attention on the dirt, the issues in other people's lives because we don't want anybody to see ours. But when you've experienced this Savior, wash your feet, wash your dirt away. When you get there, something powerful can happen in your life. Notice that Jesus, he gets to Peter, and Peter just freaks out. He, oh, no, 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 Lord, no, no, you're, you're, not, you're not touching my feet, right? And, G, and Jesus says, one day you're going to understand what this is all about. You're going to understand. And he says, you can't be a part of me unless you let me wash your feet. And so Peter relents, and he says, fine, wash my hands, wash my head, you can wash anything, because I want to be a part of you. And you see, when you get to this place where you let Jesus wash your feet, wash the dirt out of your life, then you can live into movement number four. Movement number four, we see it in verses 13, no, I mean 12 through 17. Movement number four, it says, after washing their feet, after washing their feet, Jesus is leading by example here. After washing their feet, he put his robe on again. Do you see that? He put on his robe again. Now notice Jesus took off the robe that a master or a lord would wear. He stood up in order to go around and wash the disciples' feet, but notice what he does in reverse. He, next, he puts on his robe again, and then he sits down. Now who sat down in the first century? Teachers did. Rabbis did. Right? wearing the robe like a lord, and he's sitting down like a teacher. Very, very powerful visual image here. He looks at the disciples and he says, do you understand what I am doing? They're like, no, not really. Verse 13. They didn't say that. I added that in. Verse 13. You call me teacher and lord. He says, and you're right, that's who I am. I'm the one that sits down and instructs. I'm the one that sits down and gives you the new law. Absolutely, that's who I am. I'm the one that wears the robe as the Lord of Lords. That is who I am, he says, absolutely. But verse 14, and since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, since I've led by example, you ought to wash each other's feet. <laughs> Just so that Jesus is clear on what he's saying, he says it another way. I have given you an example to follow, guys. And just so Jesus is clear, he says it in another way, do as I have done. He says the same thing in three different ways just to make sure they understand. I've given you an example to follow here. He says you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example, do as I have done. He says, I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master nor the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. And then verse 17, very scary verse right here. It says, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Oh boy. He did not say, the thing we like to do in the American church today, he did not say, now that you know these things, God will bless you for studying them more. Normally that's what we do. We, we want to grow in our spirituality in some way, and so we, 
we need to do a Bible study on foot washing. What's the proper technique for first century foot washing? Do you start on top or do you start on the bottom? How much water do you use? How big is the bowl? How big is the towel, right? That's what we like to do. Jesus said, no, 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 you're not blessed if you study these things. You're blessed if you do them, if you serve other people. Yes, in structured ways, but also situationally and spontaneously as those opportunities arise. You're blessed if you do them. You see, movement number four in this text, what Jesus is telling us is, listen, we all live in the same places as Jesus, absolutely. But we're commanded to respond in the same way as Jesus as well. You see, we all live with tension and betrayal in our life, right? I mean, right now, you're probably living with at least some amount of tension in your life. We all are because we live in a COVID world, but there may be particular things going on in your life, particular tensions and anxieties and fears going on in your life. Maybe you're living with fear and anxiety about a doctor's report. Maybe you're living in fear and anxiety about sending your kids back to school. Maybe you're living in fear and anxiety not knowing how to fix a certain problem in your life. Have you ever been betrayed? Like at work or in family or by a friend? You ever been there? You felt that relational tension where you felt like someone has betrayed you? We all have. We all have. And so many times when we feel betrayed or when someone betrays us, we just use that as our excuse to be bitter and jaded and angry at everybody around us. And so we kind of call a time out on serving other people because it's really all about us, right? Yeah. We live there. We live with tension. We live with betrayal, just like Jesus did. But we also have to do what Jesus did here. He doesn't stay there. He leans into the reassurance and the peace that God gives us. And what Jesus does in this text is he lets God define who he really is as the Son of God. And we have to do the same. We have to let God define who we really are in him, meaning we have to know him. He knows us, and we know who we are in him. And when we live there, and that reassurance and the peace that comes from that reassurance, that's how we can then serve others. That's how we can live into this love-saturated servanthood. But until we live there, it was gone. Until we live there, we live in that place where God define us. There we go. Until we live there in that place of letting God define who we are, all we're going to focus on is our own tension and betrayal that we feel in life, right? Right? But when we get there, when we let God define who we are, it frees us for love-saturated servanthood, both in structured ways and in situational and spontaneous ways. Now, there's a whole lot of reasons out there for the reason why we don't serve other people. There really are. There's a lot of excuses and some justifiable, some not. I get that. But if I'm looking at the church in the West, and if I'm looking at the American church, and if I'm looking at the church in the South, I'd say there's one main way, one reason why we do not serve others. There's one thing that holds us back from getting to that place of love-saturated servanthood. One thing. And if we can be really honest, the reason why we do not serve others is because we do not care enough to make ourselves available, both in structured ways and situationally. And I think we have to be honest about that. 
You see, we read passages like this where Jesus is saying, I'm giving you an example to follow. Go do this. Do what I am doing. We read those things and we say, oh, that sounds really, really cool. That's great for you, Jesus. And at the end of the day, the truth is about the American church, church in the West, church in the South, is we simply do not care enough about other people to make ourselves available to serve them. And I'm talking to Christians in the room. If you're not a Christian, you're just listening into a family conversation. But if you're a Christian in the room, that is the core of the issue. We just don't care. And we've bought into this idea of consumer church where it's all about me and it's what do I get out of this and how does this thing make me feel and how does this thing serve me, right? We are the people that God sent out into the world to wash the feet of others because our feet have been washed, right? He led by example. Our feet have been washed. He sends us out to wash the dirt away, wash the feet of others, and instead we're satisfied with a spiritual pedicure on most days. It's how does it make me look? How does it make me feel? How does it serve me? And one of the greatest sins in the modern church in America and in the South of which you and I are a part of, if in fact you are a Christian, is that we bought into this consumer mentality that what we do in this house is all about me. And it's sin. There's no other word for it. If you've been a Christian two minutes, two years, 20 years, or beyond, it's not about you. I'm sorry. Go. God will bless you if you do it. If you do it. I've given you an example to follow, he says. One of the things I love about communion liturgy. I know some people kind of write it off as kind of written prayers. They're not just written prayers, they're strategic prayers. And we have a long history of having a particular rhythm in the church that a lot of times we don't do uh, from time to time. But it's a very important rhythm that we have. It's called a prayer of confession. And throughout the centuries in the church, whenever the church would gather for communion, which we're not taking today, but we will soon, so you can think about this. When the church would gather to take communion, they would say this particular prayer together in unison, saying it in unity, declaring together this truth, this reality, that we hear Jesus say things like this and we simply don't do it. I think we have it on the screen here for us. It starts and says, Merciful God. That he really is a God of mercy. But it says, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. That's a lot of honesty right there, isn't it? Forgive us we pray. And free us for joyful obedience. See, serving is our privilege. We really believe that. For joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That prayer, I think, is so important for the church. So we'll be praying it next time we do communion, just so you know.
But it's important for us to come to these moments and remind ourselves that no, we actually are not the greatest thing on the planet. No, we actually don't have it all together. No, we actually don't read the words of Jesus and then like actually live into them all the time. And we need those sobering moments that bring us back to this reality that Jesus said, I've given you an example to follow. Go and do it. Do it. And so what we as the church have to do is we have to reorient our heart, both as individuals and as a church family, back in alignment with Jesus. And you do that in two ways. Number one is you repent. And we're going to give everybody an opportunity to do that, by the way, here in just a moment. And then number two, you declare your availability to God. You say, God, I'm available. I know I haven't always gotten this right, but now I'm making myself available to serve you and to serve others in your name, to wash the feet of other people, both in structured and situational ways, because this is not about me. It's about what you do through me and how you impact other people's lives. And so that's what I want to call you to this morning. I want to call you to that place of you realizing, having that sober reality that it's not about you. And that we have gotten this wrong from time to time. But if we make ourselves available, God will give us some feet to wash. Then, we'll be identified with Him. We spend our lives trying to get position, prestige, and power and right here in this moment, Jesus lays it all down. He just lays it all down. And he calls us to do the same. That's a scary text. If you really believe it. And I do. So Lord, we need you. We need you in these moments. To help us by the power of your Holy Spirit come to this moment where we say, Lord, we have not gotten this right all the time. We have failed to be an obedient church, but we need to be set free for joyful obedience. And so, Lord, each and every person that's here, I know that you've called them to serve in maybe a structured way and a situationally driven way. And so, Lord, would you help us not only repent, but make ourselves available and forgive us for the moments when this was all about us. Lord, would your spirit do your work that's just beyond manufactured emotions? Would you do deep work in us in these moments? Here we are, Lord. Here we are. What I want to invite everybody to do is to actually stay seated as we go into this last song, at least in the beginning. And let's have a moment with the Lord to reorient our life back to Him, both as individuals and as a church, and declare our availability. So let's all individually do that and pray.